going to be reading from John's Gospel from chapter 10. Very truly I tell you, Pharisees, anyone who does not enter the sheepfold by the gate, but climbs in by some other way, is a thief and a robber. The one who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The gatekeeper opens the gate for him, and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes on ahead of them, and his sheep follow him because they know his voice. But they will never follow a stranger. In fact, they will run away from him because they do not recognize a stranger's voice. Jesus used this figure of speech, but the Pharisees did not understand what he was telling them. Therefore Jesus said again, Very truly I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. All who have come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep have not listened to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd and does not own the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. Then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this sheepfold. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice, and there shall be one flock and one shepherd. The reason my Father loves me is that I lay down my life, only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I have received from my Father. The Jews who heard these words were again divided. Many of them said, He is demon-possessed and raving mad, why listen to him? But others said, These are not the sayings of a man possessed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? Then came the festival of dedication at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was in the temple courts, walking in Solomon's colonnade. The Jews who were gathered round him said, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Messiah, tell us plainly. Jesus answered, I did tell you, but you do not believe. The works I do in my Father's name testify about me, but you do not believe, because you are not my sheep. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Again his Jewish opponents picked up stones to stone him. But Jesus said to them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of these do you stone me? We are not stoning you for any good work, they replied, but for blasphemy, because you, a mere man, claim to be God. Jesus answered them, 
Is it not written in your law? I have said, You are gods. If he called them gods, to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be set aside, what about the one to whom the Father has set apart his very own and sent into the world? Why then do you accuse me of blasphemy, because I said, I am God's Son? Do not believe me unless I do the works of my Father. But if I do them, even though you do not believe, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me, and I in the Father. Again they tried to seize him, but he escaped from their grasp. Then Jesus went back across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing in the early days. There he stayed, and many people came to him. They said, Though John never performed a sign, all that John said about this man was true. And in that place many believed in Jesus. Well, thank you, Rob. Um, this morning we continue our series on um, the Gospel of John. And last week we saw what it meant for Jesus to um, not only physically heal, heal the bl- blindness of a, of a man, but also to give him spiritual sight. And today as we move into John 10, um, we will look at one of the most familiar images of Jesus, which is the Good Shepherd, the parable of the Good Shepherd. He calls himself the good shepherd, and then pre- proceeds to tell this parable. And, and it's a long chapter, and I'm going to focus in on just um, seven verses, verses 11 to 18. And, and often we think of this image of the good shepherd as a kind of a, an image of pastoral care. That's um, so where we get the word pasture rule from, isn't it? From the pasture. And while that's not untrue, like that's, that's fair enough, um, I think that when Jesus talks about himself being the good shepherd, he's saying an awful lot more. Um, and we need to think, you know, even what about what he means when he says, I am the good shepherd. What does he mean by good? Uh, uh, you know, good is one of those words which is a bit tricky in, in English because it can mean so many things. Like I remember when I was a, a, a schoolboy, I'd come home from school, mum and dad would say, Peter, how was school today? And I would say, good, which was, which was code for, fine, please stop asking me questions. You know, uh, it can just mean, eh, it's fine. Whereas if I go to a fancy restaurant and eat a meal that I really love, I'll say, this meal was good, you know, which means it was fantastic. So, you know, what does, what does good actually mean? Well, for, for the Greek people listening, um, when, they, when they heard Greek and Roman people, when they heard the word good, they'd, they'd be thinking um, morally good, noble, even beautiful. Um, and for the Hebrew and Aramaic people, when they were listening to Jesus tell his story, they, they hear the word good and they, they think, they add to that this idea of happiness, kind of like um, you think about um, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount when he said, blessed uh, or happy are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven this kind of blessedness or happiness in the word good. So, you know, these notions of moral goodness, nobleness, beautifulness, happiness, it all adds a lot of colour to what we're talking about when Je- or what Jesus is talking about when he describes himself this way. He says, I am the good, the noble, the beautiful, the morally upright and the blessed shepherd. Psalm 23 that we've looked at, Jenny's 
looked at and, and we read before is one of the key the keys the keys to unlocking this our understanding of this idea of the good shepherd. Um, in in Psalm twenty three, King, King David says, "The Lord is my shepherd; I shall not want." And then he says, "He brings me back when I go astray." And even though David was surrounded by death and it, and he was overcome by his own sin and the sin of other people, and faced with the approach of his enemies, nevertheless he had no fear because you, the shepherd. Are with me, he says. One of the other key passages that helps us understand this image is uh, Jeremiah chapter 23. And this passage shows us there are, in the history of Israel, bad shepherds. They were the, the kings of Israel that, that were, were sinful and led Israel astray. Um, so the flock of sheep, the, the, the Israelites, can only hope for a good shepherd. And they wait for this day that a good shepherd will appear. And the centuries go by in the, in the Old Testament times and the Israelites end up in captivity under the Persians and the Babylonians, even under the Greeks and the Romans ruling over them. And they longed for this divine intervention. And so when Jesus arrives on the scene and he says, I am the good shepherd, he's saying the time has arrived. Your good shepherd has arrived. Here I am. And the thing is, what this means for him to be the good shepherd really is going to be a bit of a shock for, for the people listening. It's not what they expected. Jesus is the good, the noble, the beautiful, the morally upright, and the blessed or happy shepherd. But he's, he is so for reasons they're not going to expect. He has a mission. The good shepherd has a mission to the world. And that mission is going to come at a huge cost. And so this morning, when we look at verses 11 to 17, um, the centerpiece of, of this, this chapter, I would say in some ways, we'll see what the good, good shepherd's mission is. And we'll see that his mission is to die, is to defeat death, and it's to create the church. So let's have a look at, look at this passage. The good, ship, good shepherd's mission to die. The first thing we learn from the Good Shepherd parable is that he has death in his view. Verse 11, I am the Good Shepherd. The Good Shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. Something that I encourage young church leaders to do is to develop what's called an integrated vision statement. Sounds a bit corporate, but it's actually not far from it. What what an integrated vision statement is is different from just a plain old vision statement because it's about discerning more clearly God's vision for our lives and then committing to living God's call on our lives with, with a sense of urgency and commitment. The Presbyterian writer and theologian Frederick Buchner writes, the place God, God calls you is the place where your deep gladness and the world's deep hunger meets. So when you're coming up with your integrated vision statement, you're not just um, writing your bucket list or what career goals you've got. Um, rather, it's about understanding at a, in a deep sense clearly who God is and who you are before God. Understanding what has happened in your life so far, what's happening right now, and what you think is about to happen in terms of what is unfolding in front of you, your life. And then to have a vision for the kingdom to see how see what God is doing in the kingdom and how you fit into that vision of God. 
An integrated vision statement is a way to work out God's particular calling on your life. And for people in ministry, it's really good. It stops you from just bouncing around to ministry job to ministry job, but having a really deep sense of what God has done in you. And I, I went through that process of doing that um, to discern about whether to be a church planter. And I, and I think it's so important. The Anglo-Catholic writer and pacifist from the early 20th century, Evelyn Underhill, said this, The most important thing of you is your vision, your sense of God. The richer, deeper, wider your vision of the divine reality, the more rich, real, deeper, and fruitful your work will be. One of the shortest and pithiest um, integrated vision statements I heard came from Eugene Peterson, who said something along this line. He said, Preach the gospel as much as I can, die and be forgotten. <laughs> and the good thing about that, which I've, I think is more profound than you, know, you might think, is that it's got the role of his death in perspective um, and, it, and, it, and it helps him to understand really where he fits in in the kingdom and to have his priorities Right. It's not a, his life is not about building his own platform. Often the sign of, of wisdom and maturity in a person is that, is that they kind of live their life, but they have a kind of mature understanding of their, the length of their life and that they will die one day. They see the whole picture. And see, I think the good parable of the Good Shepherd is revealing the Son of God, Jesus integrated vision statement and he begins notice he begins with his death verse 11b um, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep and verse 14 to 15 i am the good shepherd i know my sheep and my sheep know me just as the father knows me and i know the father and i lay down my life for the sheep his own death is in view he knows his sheep so much. And when he says he knows them, there's a, there's a link here between his death and his knowledge of his people. Well, let's have a look at that. See, in the Bible, we know um, if, you've, if you've read the Bible a little bit, especially the book of Genesis in the start, you know that to know someone is to, do, is to know them intimately. So, for example, Adam knew his wife Eve and she conceived. You know, there's a real intimacy there in that word knowledge and and that's what uh, the shepherd is talk- Jesus is talking about. The good shepherd knows his sheep intimately. There's a close personal relationship between them. Um, just as there is a close intimate relationship between the Son of God and God the Father. But notice at the end, again, he, I lay down my life for the sheep, for the ones I love. This close personal relationship comes... Um, because it, it sort of is an overflow of the love between the Father and the Son and between the Son and His sheep. It's a natural result of that love. The love that the Good Shepherd has, or that Jesus has, is because, in fact, because of His death, because of the cross. The fact that the Good Shepherd lays down His life for the sheep means that we the believing community, the church, the people of God, are drawn closer to him. Uh, we're, we're drawn closer to his heart, the heart of the good shepherd, who himself dwells within the very heart of God. 
See, it's the mission of the good shepherd to die. And this is really profound. And he does this out of love. Think about it, about it this way. When anyone pays a huge price to save you or to save me, that saviour thereby, thereby creates a really um, close bond. You know, they saved my life. I will be forever grateful for them. There's a special relationship that forms. You might know the story of the famous um, American pilot who, whose name is Chelsea Sully Sullenberger. His movie been made about him and quite famous. A few years ago, Sully um, became famous for saving 155 passengers and crew on his plane flying over New York. And um, he flew into uh, a... a a flock of birds flew into the engine and shut the engines down and he had no engine power and he he managed to land the plane on the Hudson River with no engines and he say not one single person died and about one year after the reu- after the after this happened there was a reunion um, that was held for the passengers and crew and in fact, for, for most of these passengers, they'd not actually met Sully at this point. They were meeting him for the first time. And I want to show you what that was like, that reunion. 60 Minutes Rewind. You've been called a hero by a lot of people. How do you feel about that? I don't feel comfortable embracing it, but I don't want to deny it. I don't want to diminish their thankful feeling toward me by telling them that they're wrong. Hi. Hi, Amy. How are you? saving my life. You did an incredible job. Really, really, really proud. Thank you so much for bringing my husband home to me. What's your name? Sherry Leonard. Judy. Hi, Judy. Thank you so much. We kept our family together. You are our hero. Yes, you're Thank you. the whole Thank crew. You. Okay. I'm a celebrity and my personal hero. Could you uh, ask you to sign my shirt? Right there. <laughs> you got it. Let me make it big and bold. Where were you sitting? I, I was in 16B, but we helped with the raft. And I saw you, you yes. Gave, you guys gave us all the courage. More than one woman came up to me and said, thank you for not making me a widow. Thank you for allowing my three-year-old son to have a father. You're very welcome. Unbelievable. One man had told me that, you know, I was looking at him, he was in first class, and he seemed to be very anxious, and I just told him, just, you know, be calm, and, you know, just try to breathe. I can't tell you how frightened I was that we were coming down, and I was just thinking, this person is looking at me and she's telling me everything's going to be fine. Thank you again. Good okay. to see you. 155 is a number, but when you can put faces to it, and not just the 155 faces, but the, the other faces, the wives, the daughters, the sons, the fathers, the mothers, the brothers, you know, it's, it's, it gets to be a pretty big number pretty quickly. I simply wanted to thank all of you for coming. I think today was as much and as good for me and my crew as it was for you. Uh, we will be joined forever because of the events of January 15th in our hearts and our minds. Goodbye.
we will be joined together because of the, the events of January 15th in our hearts and minds. I want you to imagine in your mind the moment that will come one day when you stand before Jesus, our Good Shepherd, and you see him face to face for the first time. Imagine how close and bonded you will feel to, towards him. The cross, his death for you, has made this bond possible. The goods, Good Shepherd's mission was to die, and he died for you. He died so that you would not have to die. Well, there's more to his death. Uh, the Good Shepherd's mission is actually not just to die, but to defeat death. Let's look at that. Death has a purpose. Verse 12 and 13, The hired hand is not the shepherd and does not own the sheep, so when he sees a wolf coming, he abandons his sheep and runs away. Then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. So there's these two other characters in the, in the parable, and that's the hired hand and also the wolf. The hired hand has no tie, ties with a sheep. He's just an employed person, and he's not emotionally or intimately connected to them like uh, the good shepherd is. So as soon as the dangerous wolf comes, he's not going to risk his life for the sheep. He runs off. What's Jesus talking about here? Now, we don't have necessarily a one-to-one explanation from Jesus about who the wolf and who the hired hand are supposed to represent. And this is often the case in Jesus' parables. Jesus' parables are not always, or often they're not black and white, um, and that's part of the beauty of them. And we should be a little bit careful not to force black and white meaning on the parables when they're not black and white. But we can try and make a guess, as long as we hold that guess lightly. And what we do know is that the hired hand and the wolf are the ones responsible for the death of the good shepherd. The wolf comes and attacks the sheep. The hired hand runs away from the sheep and abandons the sheep. But the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He's killed by the wolf. The wolf effectively kills him instead. So the hired hand is a bit like the bad shepherds talked about in the Old Testament, the, 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 the corrupt kings of Israel who led the people into sin. And perhaps Jesus is implying that the corrupt high priests of the day were more, who were more interested in their, their own welfare than the welfare of the people they were supposed to be caring for, perhaps that's what he's making a point about them. And we see that the good shepherd is killed by the wolf, But then later in the parable, the good shepherd conquers death through his own resurrection. Look at verse 17 to 18. The reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. So the wolf seems to be an agent of death, but God the Father gave God the Son, the Good Shepherd, the authority and power to rise from the dead. To the earliest readers of the Gospel of John, perhaps they would have thought of Rome as being the agent of death. He certainly, the Roman authorities were certainly the agents of Jesus' own death on the cross. 
perhaps the wolf is like death incarnate of, of, of the power of Rome. Listen to this quote from the author Kenneth Bailey. At the cross, the finest system of justice in the ancient world, Rome, combined with the leaders of the finest religion the world had ever known, Judaism, to destroy this good man. The hired hand, because he ran away, and the wolf, because he attacked, were co-conspirators in the death of the shepherd and the scattering of the flock. Yet on Easter morning, at the empty tomb, a far greater victory was won than any any of the Roman army achieved on any field of battle. The Apostle Paul said this when he wrote about the resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15. He said, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. And it's interesting from the parable of the Good Shepherd um, that it doesn't describe the struggle between the Good Shepherd and the wolf. We just know that the shepherd dies. If it was an Avengers film or a Star Wars kind of film, then the battle between the wolf and the shepherd would be like the third third of the movie. Like you'd spend half an hour on it and there'd be lots of special effects and lots of blood and guts and things. Um, But both in the gospel accounts of Jesus' death and... In this parable, there's no description of the struggle between Christ and the wolf or Christ and death. In the Gospels of Mark and Luke, it just says, they crucified him, and that's it, full stop. And in Matthew and John, they, they, um, they skip ahead to the casting of lots and, and, the, and the distributing of his clothes. And then they say, in those Gospels, when they had crucified him, they dot, dot, dot. They just skip over, over the struggle. And so the movie, The Passion of the Christ, which is kind of like three hours or however long it is of, of blood and guts, pretty much focusing on the struggle, is doing something quite different to what the Bible, the New Testament does, is putting all the focus on the struggle. Um, and, you know, the, the focus is on the gruesomeness of it and the blood and the gore. And maybe there's something helpful in that, but maybe it's something unhelpful as well. Because we don't actually get any of that in the New Testament. No dramatic story of the wolf growling and tearing at the flesh of the good shepherd and the shepherd lying dead on the ground. There's none of that. There's no pornography of suffering, as Kenneth Bailey points out in his book. So this is interesting considering in Jesus' day, people did go out to watch the executions of criminals for entertainment now, what, what the authors of the New Testament really want to focus on is what the purpose of the cross is. And we get that in the meaning of this parable, and that is to defeat death. The good shepherd lays down his life as sheep, but he has the power to do that and to raise himself up again. This is amazing stuff. The good shepherd, he has his mission to die, and he has his mission to defeat death. But there's a third thing that the Good Shepherd has to do, and that is to create the church. Look at verse 16, and this is kind of the natural overflow of of the first two parts of his mission. I have other sheep that are not of this sheep pen. I must bring them in also. They too will listen to my voice, and there shall be one flock and one shepherd. When the Apostle Paul um, went to Corinth, we read in Acts 18 verse 10 that he said, I have many people in this city. In other words, as a missionary apostle, 
he he trusted in the fact that when he rocked up to a new town where he'd never been, that God had already picked people out to respond to, to the, the message of Jesus. And this is what Jesus is talking about as well when he describes other sheep. Now, he is talking about Gentiles. He's saying to the Pharisees listening, there are other people, there are other people that outside of your tribe that are going to come in to my flock. But he's also just talking about God's big plan for the mission to the whole world. And this shows a confidence Jesus had in his mission. The people are out there, he's saying. They just need to be gathered. And this is how we should think as evangelists and as the church, as the church expanding, the growing and planting. We need to trust that when we plant churches and go out there on mission and when we walk down our streets around our neighborhood, that there are already people scattered around the joint who, are, who God has picked out, that, who are waiting to hear and respond. And it's the job of the evangelist to faithfully announce the gospel, but we don't have the power or the responsibility of deciding who responds. Only God does that, and he does that from before the creation of the earth. Notice that the sheep hear and obey the voice of the master shepherd. So it's the job of the evangelist to make the voice of the, shepherd, of the good shepherd clear so that they can hear his voice rather than making the voice of the evangelist clear. Sometimes you can get these slick evangelists who, who really try and persuade people to follow Jesus with their own wit and dynamic presentation. What can sometimes happen is that people don't really say yes to the voice of the, of the good shepherd, but they say yes to the voice of the evangelist. And this is how shallow ministries are formed because there's no power in that really. Uh, it's also how cults are formed. But when the, the sheep hear the voice of the good shepherd, they obey, says Jesus. And look at the second half of verse 16. They too will listen to my voice and there shall be one flock and one shepherd. Notice that Jesus affirms this idea of one flock. In other words, while there are, while the church includes everyone from Australians, Chinese and French and Indonesians and Russians, Fijians, people from all countries and all races, and it includes Pentecostals and Methodists and the Amish and Roman Catholics and Greek Orthodox and Anglicans and denominations and non-denominational churches. In fact, the Good Shepherd says there's only one flock. And that flock is made up of the sheep who call on the name of Jesus. It's true that they can gather in different sheepfolds, but there's only one flock. The Armenian Archbishop um, Nurses, in his commentary on the Divine Liturgy, said this, All we Christians adore in, in diverse tongues one Jesus Christ, and all we Christians are the one church of Jesus Christ. When Christians in Spain pray, that prayer is for me too, for I am a Christian as they are. And when I am praying in Cecilia, uh, Cilicia, my prayer is for them too, for they too profess the same faith as I. I am united by tradition to whoever bears the name of Christ as a crown of glory. All are in Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ is in all. 
the, this past week I've been leading on um, Arrow, which is a leadership training program that I lead on. And um, one of the things I love about Arrow is that um, it includes church leaders, young church leaders from all the main kind of denominations and in independent churches as well. Um, Salvation Army officers and Presbyterian pastors and uh, Anglican ministers and Baptist pastors and um, Pentecostals and Churches of Christ. Occasionally there's a Roman Catholic in there. And one of the, one of the things that I love about doing arrows that I feel a lot closer to experiencing the flock, the one flock, the true kingdom of God, um, the one flock of Jesus Christ in all its expressions and varied colors. I do that when I'm with Anglicans, less so, less so. Uh, it feels like, you know, we're just one little narrow culture within a big, broad spectrum of, of, of the church. And I find it strange when I talk to some Anglican leaders um, that only live inside an Anglican world. Uh, they don't have an awareness of the wider church in Australia. They wouldn't have a clue what's going on in the Baptist church just down the road. There is so much going on, so much colour and diversity from which we can benefit each other from our different strengths. The Good Shepherd didn't come to die to build the Anglican church on its own. He came to rescue his people and to build the, the one flock, the universal church, or in technical language, the, the, the holy Catholic and apostolic church, where Catholic means universal rather, rather than just specifically Roman Catholic. I remember my, my English teacher, Sandy Kuno, in year 11, saying to me before I went on my overseas trip, my first overseas trip to Europe, um, that she said, visiting other countries is like reading seven novels a day. And what she meant was, by immersing yourself in other lands and in other cultures, you see how other people live. You taste other people's food. You smell different aromas. Your horizon is expanded. And this is part of the philosophy behind the Crossing the Isle ministry that we do, isn't it? That we expose ourselves to people from different cultures and backgrounds and we grow as people we have the opportunity to learn from others and serve people and are able to fulfill god's mission more effectively so my encouragement to you is to befriend christians from different backgrounds to pray for the wider church and to resist christian tribalism because it only leads to narrow-mindedness i'm not suggesting you have to accept all theologies or you know be some kind of wishy-washy Christian that's just, you know, has no sort of standards or, um, or doctrine that you keep to. Uh, but you can befriend other Christians and be exposed to them in humility to see what God might reveal to you and what you, what you might reveal to them as well. And know that the Good Shepherd has his sheep that you don't even know about, that are not part of your sheep pen, but who are part of the one flock that the Good Shepherd is building in his mission to the world. These are sheep that have responded to the voice of their master, the Good Shepherd. So what does the parable of the Good Shepherd tell us? It tells us about the mission of the Good Shepherd, the mission of the Good Shepherd to die, the mission of the Good Shepherd to defeat death and the mission of the Good Shepherd to build his church 
This is why the Good Shepherd is beautiful and noble. So I invite you to hear the voice of the Good Shepherd and to respond in obedience and join his flock.